This is an ABC podcast. The first steam-powered railway began operation in Australia in 1854. That was in Victoria, and soon all the Australian colonies followed suit. Rail was very clearly the future. It was going to transform the continent. But it seems no one had the gumption to look ahead and realise that it might be a good idea to have a standard gauge. Today, there are still three different types of gauges in operation across the country. A curious development? Yes, but hardly unique. Because let's face it, human beings have long been in a long-term battle with short-term thinking. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. All aboard! If you look at many measures of humanity, like economic growth, technological acceleration, things definitely do seem to be getting faster. And you know, I, I think there's something to the notion that as things get faster, it's harder to kind of predict the mind into the, the future and think ahead. Richard Fisher says our inability to look beyond the latest news cycle could be one of the most dangerous traits of our generation. Richard is a senior reporter and former editor of BBC Future. There's a famous kind of notion called cathedral thinking, which describes how our ancestors in the Middle Ages used to kind of build cathedrals. They would start in one generation and then ask the next generation to finish the project. It's often the case that people talk about cathedral thinking as a way of thinking about long-term time and how to do it well. However, like one of the points that the researcher Martin Rees at the University of Cambridge has made about cathedral thinking is that it was a little bit easier for our ancestors because they were living in a time when things didn't change that much. So when they were thinking about their grandchildren, they were thinking about a life for them that was very similar to their own. Whereas like, if I think of my daughter Grace, who's eight years old, when she reaches the 22nd century, life is going to be completely different. And therefore, because it's harder to predict the future, because so many things are changing, that is one of the factors that nudges us towards short-term thinking. So a bias toward focusing on the short-term, is that inevitable in the sort of system that we've constructed for society, one that's fueled on you know, constant feedback, performance targets, real-time analysis, that kind of thing? I definitely do not think it's inevitable. I think it, it's the consequence of lots of different factors. If it was easy to fix, then I think we would have done it a long time ago. But I think there are many different pressures that nudge us towards short-term thinking, both external and internal. So, for example, capitalism has created the idea of the quarter, which nudges companies to think about quarterly results rather than long-term results. In politics, like politicians tend to think on the timescale of elections and, and kind of like term lengths rather than 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. So there's many different kind of incentives and deterrents that we've created in order to make other parts of life faster, easier, better, that have had unforeseen consequences that have nudged us towards this short-term thinking. But I also think that there's the psychological effects too, you know, so, so our brains were developed thousands of years ago and our ancestors kind of gave us a mental architecture for thinking about time that is incredible and it allows us to mentally time travel from past, present to future, which as far as we know other animals can't do. However, in order to kind of do that, it, we've had to create lots of psychological shortcuts in order to, to kind of, to, you know, as I say, time travel from, from past to future. So, so for example, we, we make choices about the future based on the recent past, things that are available and salient 
tend to be the ingredients for the patterns that we build about what's to come. And so those kind of psychological biases and habits, they play a role too. It's that mixture of external systemic structural factors and the psychology that we got from our ancestors that I think have combined to kind of lead us into this age of short-term thinking. You point out that our sense of the future has expanded and contracted over time. Why and in response to what? One of the conclusions I've come to is that a factor that shapes this is crisis. If your house is on fire, then you're thinking about your house being on fire, not about what you're going to be doing on holiday next year. And I think this applies on the societal scale too. So you see it over the last 100 to 150 years. At the beginning of the 20th century, there was kind of an expansion in terms of our time perspective. You had writers like H.G. Wells writing about the very, very far future, way, way ahead, far further than anyone had written in fiction before. And then then in science, you had a discovery of kind of radiometric dating and the growing awareness that the universe was much, much older than we, than we ever thought. But then the world wars happened. And during times of crisis, I think we tend to focus on the present because we have big problems to fix. And there is something to that at the moment as well. You know, there are many different crises that the world faces, both political and environmental. And so it's difficult to look beyond. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic still. And whilst long-term thinking helps, you know, we've got a lot of things on our plate to fix first. I think this is the challenge. How do we, in a time of crisis, deal with the problems that we face, but also look around the corner too? That requires a like, certain mindset that I think is, is difficult, but possible, I think. You know, it's, to be long-minded doesn't mean to think that you only think about the long-term future. It just means that you're able to do both that you can move between dealing with the crisis in front of you, but you also have an eye on the next 10, 100,000 years as well. Now, various governments have set up initiatives to foster future thinking or long-term thinking. Could I get you to tell us about some of those and, and whether they've been successful? The one closest to home for me is in Wales. So a few years ago, Wales passed a specific piece of legislation that encouraged, if not enforced, policymakers to think about how their policies affect future generations. And as part of that, they appointed somebody called Sophie Howes, who is the Future Generations Commissioner. Now, she doesn't have actual legislative power to knock politicians on the head and stop them doing things, but she does have a kind of name and shame approach where if a politician or policymaker is doing something that is not good for future generations, then she can highlight that. That example is now inspiring others. So there's a lot of activity in the House of Lords in the UK to try and kind of foster future generations thinking within policy. I'd say at the moment it's it's disparate, various different experiments that have been tried in places like Hungary and, and Israel, but a will that's there to encourage people to think over the long term in the politics that they are involved in. What's interesting, I think, is it's not a party political issue. Most people agree that we should do right by our children. It's not a controversial point to kind of say that we should do some things to help like the future generations that we are giving the world to. Just that first step, I think, of fostering awareness within policy to encourage politicians to think about that when they create laws, I think is an interesting and encouraging sign. I think it's going to take a long time to kind of actually bed in, but I think it's there and it's growing. Now, there are also various non-government organisations that are trying to do this as well. Could I get you to tell us about the notion of Tempus Nullius? The context is that there's a lot of different organisations and groups that have begun to converge on the idea that long-term thinking matters. So one of the authors who is worth reading is Roman Kuznarik, who wrote a book called The Good Ancestor. One of Kuznarik's key ideas is this idea of of Tempus Nullius, which was inspired by the, the term Terra Nullius, 
the idea is that the future is often approached as nobody's time in the same way that Terra's Nullius is nobody's land. And now what Kaznarik argues is that we tend to think of the future as a space that does not belong to the people living there, that it can be colonised, that we can do things in the present day that will have impacts on future generations. For example, leaving nuclear waste buried in the ground, a heated atmosphere, you know, that, that we pass these things forward to future generations and we don't really think about them in those acts. So this idea of colonising the future, I think, is a really powerful one. It's a framing that encouraged me to rethink about those future generations. You know, they don't exist yet. They're not born, trillions of them. But when you start to think about what their rights are, how they don't have representation in politics, in kind of the decisions that we make as individuals, then I think it starts to change subtly how we think about our acts today. You recently undertook a fellowship at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And as part of that, you identified a series of pressures on our ability to think ahead, five in all. Could I get you to briefly take us through those? The first is salience. There's a psychological bias called salience bias, which encourages us to think about these things that are kind of like loud, local and urgent in our decisions. And so salience feeds into kind of all sorts of decisions that we make about the future. So we tend to like look ahead based on the things that are nearby and the most prominent and use that to build a tapestry of what's to come. The thing about the long term is that like, often the patterns are quieter. They're not as salient. They're not as loud and, and attention grabbing. So salience is the first pressure. Habit is the second. We tend to kind of carry on doing things because we've always done them. You know, so I think part of short term thinking lies in the fact that, that we do things without analysing them and accept, we accept them as the norm rather than kind of thinking about how they are shaping our, our decisions in, in all sorts of different ways. Now, the third pressure that you identify is overload, isn't it? Yeah, so overload is something that I think about a lot. We live in a time where we're kind of buried in in information. And since the age of the internet began, there's been just so much information to digest, social media, to the news. The fact that we are constantly overloaded means that it can sometimes feel like everything around us is, is all the information that we need. And the trouble with that kind of mode of thinking is that it encourages again to think about the most salient things. So the news media focuses on the now. It's not necessarily set up to encourage us to think about the next 10, 20, 30 years. And, you know, the final two pressures that encourages into short-term thinking are responsibility and, and target. Responsibility, I think, is, is an interesting one because I think it applies to how we think about how our decisions ripple ahead into tomorrow. How does the fact that you took a flight last year affect the climate change problem that we face today? And the answer is, of course, we're not individually culpable. can't point at one person and say, Joe in, in Sydney is responsible for all of climate change. Obviously, we are collectively responsible. Thinking about how we can be responsible for the future that is to come, I think, is something that is, is a challenge for our heads around, you know. How do lots and lots of small decisions join together to shape the future and, and leave these legacies for future generations? And then the final pressure, I think, that nudges us into short-term thinking is, is a big one, is targets. There are many, many different incentives that were set up to make the world faster, smoother, get us to do things, you know, to encourage economic growth and all sorts of things in our individual life through to kind of like a, on the organisational scale. Targets tend to shape people's behaviour. As soon as you're given a target, you tend to kind of reorient your approach in order to meet that target. 
There's many different examples of this, but the quarterly targets report to the market every quarter, you know, how they've done and what they expect to do in the next quarter. The trouble is, like, when you're doing that every few months, you're going to make decisions that make you look good on the quarterly target report, not in terms of, like, what the long-term strategy of your business should be. And so that's on the organizational scale, but I think it applies to individuals too. You give somebody the wrong target and are going to change their behavior to meet that target. I think the the key for us is to kind of think about how do we create targets that encourage long-term thinking and long-term approaches as well as leading to short-term results too. And just finally, as you pointed out, our ability to imagine far into the future is constrained, but that has no relation to our power to shape the future, does it? That's true. There was a series of philosophers and researchers who have been kind of debating this question recently. It's called the hinge of history debate. It's an argument that this century we may be living at what they call the most influential time in human history to date. Now, it's a bold claim, but I think there is something to it when you consider that over the past hundred years, we developed the ability to destroy ourselves, for example. You know, so before the nuclear age, the threats that we faced as a species tended to be mainly natural, you know, super volcanoes or asteroids. But as soon as we develop nuclear weapons, as soon as we develop artificial intelligence that could one day run amok, we also created existential threats too. And so the argument that we're living at the hinge of history is that there's never been a time when we've had such influence on the future, the legacies that we leave behind. There are many elements that we leave that are good, but a nuclear fuel rod, the plastic fibres that we leave in the ocean, the heated atmosphere, these are legacies that the next generation don't particularly want, but are going to have to take and potentially pass to the next generation after them. We have the power to affect the future lives of many different people who are not yet born, but we haven't yet acquired the wisdom to work out what to do with that power. Well, Richard Fisher, it's been a a terrific conversation. It's a fascinating article and we'll make sure we link to it on the Future Tense website. Thank you very much for joining us. No problem. Thanks very much. Punishment is regularly used as a form of retribution. It's also used by society as a deterrent against future wrongdoing. If you know what's in store for you, so the logic goes, then you'll think twice about breaking the law. We know from long experience that it doesn't always work out that way. But why? Researchers at the University of New South Wales have been testing the idea that an inability to see how actions lead to outcomes might be at fault. That, rather than simple recklessness or outright stupidity. Research fellow, Dr Jessica Lee. Yeah, so we set out to really understand what was causing individual differences in what we call sensitivity to punishment. So we set up this experimental game for participants where their goal was to earn as many points as possible and they could earn points by clicking on one of two planets and at the beginning both of them resulted in a reward some of the time so they would earn points for clicking on those planets. And then after a while we introduced a punishment contingency so one of the planets would sometimes result in a pirate ship. And when that pirate ship appeared, it stole 20% of their points. So that was the punishment. But clicking on the other planet only resulted in the appearance of a friendly ship. So the friendly ship didn't steal any of their points. And then we found at the end of the task, there was a very clear divide between whether participants were avoiding the punished planet or whether they continued to trade with both planets. So that's what we're kind of referring to as our punishment-sensitive and punishment-insensitive individuals. 
So we set up the task to include a bunch of measures to basically try and distinguish between various accounts of why people might be insensitive to punishment. And the kind of surprising finding was that the only thing that distinguished the punishment sensitive and insensitive individuals was whether or not they had learnt that their actions were actually causing the punishment. So participants who avoided the punished planet knew that that planet was leading to the pirate ship and that's why they avoided trading with that planet, whereas the punishment insensitive individuals, they never actually learnt that relationship. So this is about understanding consequence, isn't it? That your actions can lead to certain negative consequences in, in certain situations. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, in in one sense, that's, you know, quite like an obvious point. But uh, we had actually set up the task to test these more popular accounts of punishment insensitivity. So the more like popular accounts of punishment sensitivity say that these individuals, you know, maybe have poor impulse control or they overvalue rewards or they undervalue punishment. So we included a bunch of measures, personality measures and so on, to see whether these explanations could explain the differences that we saw. But none of them really distinguished between our sensitive and insensitive individuals, only the instrumental learning. So whether participants could learn that their actions were resulting in the punishment distinguished those clusters. So what do you put it down to? What's What's the suggestion at this stage? What makes some individuals punishment insensitive, as you say? Yeah, that's a really good question. This is like a preliminary study. So we're running follow-ups at the moment to try and work out what it is that is, you know, maybe making it harder for these individuals to learn these contingencies. At the moment, we're varying things like the contingency between the responses and the spaceship. So one feature in the original study was that responding to the punished planet only sometimes caused the presentation of the pirate ship. So we're looking at whether, you know, increasing the contingency or the reliability of that relationship will lead people to be better at learning the punishment contingencies. So, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. We're not really sure why people are having such trouble learning that particular relationship. And is the suggestion that this inability, this insensitivity to punishment, this inability to see consequences, that that would apply to a broad spectrum of behaviours? At the moment, because this is just a single study, I think, you know, we don't really know how the results generalise, but we're certainly interested in following up this result. So, for example, we're interested in knowing whether the same kind of results will hold for different types of punishment. So, in our study, the punishment was loss of points, but we could include other punishes such as, um, you know, like electric shock or something like that. And we can also look at whether presenting participants with knowledge of these instrumental contingencies, whether these punishment-sensitive individuals will change their behaviour as a result of having that knowledge. And is this an either-or phenomenon? Is there nothing in between in terms of, you know, you're either sensitive or insensitive from the test that you've done? Yeah, so actually one of the um, kind of striking features of our results was that we didn't find anyone in between. So people either completely avoided the punished planet or they didn't. So again, because the results are preliminary, we don't know whether this pattern will hold across various samples, different tasks, different punishes and so on. But if it does, uh, yeah, I think that's quite a striking finding. Okay, so this is initial research. 
you're taking it further from here, but what does it indicate at the moment or what are the possible implications for our understanding of justice and law enforcement, the way our society deals with, you know, bad or criminal behaviour? Suggests that just having the punishment there isn't necessarily going to cause changes in behaviour. And I think, you know, our results really highlight that understanding people's kind of personal beliefs in what they think is causing the punishment and their role in causing the punishment is really important to understand. I think it's an often overlooked aspect in the punishment literature. Dr Jessica Lee, a psychologist from the University of New South Wales. You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. When we first reported on the Seabed 2030 project back in early 2019, only around 9% of the world's oceans had been mapped in high resolution. Two and a half years on, that figure is now around 20%. So what's been the experience and what have researchers found? Jotika Vermani is the executive director of the Schmidt Ocean Institute and they're part of the ambitious initiative. The ocean covers 71% of our own planet and we really don't know what's out there. It's like living in a three-floor house and you only really know what's on the first floor. So we want to map the oceans because a map is kind of a fundamental piece of our understanding of where we are in the universe and what's around us and to get an understanding of what's out there. And then once we understand something, we start to value it. And once we value it, we start to you know, ensure that it's healthy. So a seafloor map is important from that perspective, but it's also important to allow us to be able to manage our own planet a little better, our own ocean environment, not only for you know, using it for communications and for other things, but also for conservation. Without knowing what's out there, it's really hard to know what needs special protection and what doesn't. And have you made any significant discoveries in the, obviously the work has been going on, but has, has there been any unusual discoveries in the last couple of years? Yes, actually, we and scientists on board Falcor which is our research vessel, the Schmidt Ocean Institute research vessel, last year, last October, discovered a new coral reef off the Great Barrier Reef. So it was a 500 metre tall feature. That was a new discovery. It was the first time a new reef has been discovered in that part of the world in 120 years. And it was actually part of a systematic mapping of that area of the seafloor. Globally, various organisations are using both surface and subsurface autonomous and remote control drones. There is one called Sail Drone. There's another one called Seekit. There's a number of them out there now. The underwater piece called AUVs, Autonomous Underwater Vehicles, they have mapping capabilities and they can be sent down into the deep ocean and to map the seafloor. The surface vessels also have this capability, these autonomous and remotely controlled devices to map the seafloor in the same way that ships do, ships with people on board. And so they can be sent out being controlled by someone sitting at their desk on land and they do these mapping missions. And so there was one recently sail drone mapped from the US mainland over to Hawaii across the Pacific Ocean. And then last year in the Atlantic, Seakit mapped 
a region in the Atlantic three weeks mapping mission. So are these types of unmanned craft, are they the, the future of ocean research? I think it's going to be a blend. The ocean is just so massive that there's room for everything at this point. So I think it's going to be a blend. What these provide, these remote vessels and autonomous crafts, is they allow us to scale up and they allow us to do basic measurements like mapping or collecting temperature and salinity. I think we still need research vessels for scientists to go out to give people, you know, students an education, to inspire people. But I still think we need people to go out at sea to do more detailed, targeted research in various areas. But what these vessels do, these autonomous devices, it's great because it could be a precursor before the research scientists go out, so you save time, or you can go out collectively, the research vessel and the autonomous devices, and then you could map a bigger area at the same time. And I presume there are advantages in dealing with inclement weather, that you, you don't have humans out there when, say, it's too cold or when the actual waters are too rough. That is exactly right. It's great. These autonomous and remote controlled vessels, you don't need humans out. And that does allow for us to access parts of the ocean where it is really difficult. So to give you an example, Sail Drone is one of these and they went around Antarctica in the winter. And, you know, Antarctic waters are really, really rough in the wintertime. And they managed to collect data good data in the wintertime when previously we'd not had research vessels that were able to go into those rough seas. Now, there was talk right at the beginning of the initiative of co-opting, you know, private ships and, and cruise liners to be part of this research. I take it because of COVID that cruise liners, you know, haven't been involved to any great extent, but are private vessels and private operators still being utilised? I think we're seeing more and more people joining this effort. It is a global effort to map the seafloor by 2030. And I think it is going to be essentially crowdsourced. So there is an open general call for anyone who, whether you're part of government or whether you're philanthropic like us or whether you're in private industry or recreational to help to map the seafloor. From the work that's been done so far, what are the obstacles that lay ahead? What are the challenges that have become obvious in moving forward? Well, you mentioned, you know, things like COVID. It has been difficult to continue operations at sea for those with people on board, as we've seen in many stories. Now, at the Schmidt Ocean Institute, we were fortunate in that we were off Australia when COVID hit. And for, you know, the bulk of last year, Australia didn't really have any uh, real pandemic there. So it was great. We were able to continue operations throughout the year. But many vessels pulled into port. What these autonomous devices do is allow that work to continue, kind of like we're seeing in many other fields uh, where autonomous devices are kicking in. So one of the challenges is going to be to get everyone back at sea, get everyone out there and doing this work. And I think the other one is we just need more of these. We need more people. We've only got just over 20% mapped. And I think we need more people to be collecting data and contributing them to this general database. And in terms of that 2030 target, is it aspirational or is it still a realistic goal? I think it can be achieved. I'm an optimistic person. It is aspirational, but I actually also think it is realistic given how fast we've seen technology evolve. 
over the last five years or so. So I was involved with the Ocean Discovery X Prize, which is the winner of that was Seekit. And that was for technology to map the seafloor quickly at low cost at scale. And when we launched that at the end of 2015, you know, I was told it wasn't possible to do that kind of work. And, you know, it was awarded in 2019, four years later, and that technology now exists and it's now mapping the seafloor. So I think it is certainly possible to get this done by 2030. Jyotika Vamani from the Schmidt Ocean Institute, giving us an update there on the progress of the Seabed 2030 project. We also heard today from Dr Jessica Lee, a psychologist from the University of New South Wales, and Richard Fisher on short-termism from BBC Future. Karen Savandovitz is the producer of Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.